Hello, and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history program at Southern New Hampshire University. Today, I am talking to Dr. Josh Esposito, an instructor in the history program at SNHU, who works as a historian for the U.S. Southern Command in Miami, Florida. Today, we will talk about his background, what life is like working as a historian in a military headquarters, and his advice for students looking to follow in his footsteps. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Josh Esposito. I'm contracted through the Cellstar Corporation to be a historian at United States Southern Command in Miami, Florida. And what is your academic and professional background? I did my undergraduate degree at Shippensburg University, which is a state school in Pennsylvania. Uh, then spent four years in the U.S. Navy, uh, then went to West Virginia University where I did my master's and Ph.D. uh, before I came down here to Miami. And what were your uh, research and teaching interests during your degree programs? I focused my primary research interests uh, had to do with the Cold War and decolonization. I focused on U.S. foreign relations, specifically with Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, and even more specifically uh, with the role of organized labor uh, in international relations. I also had an interest in U.S. domestic history during the 20th century, African-American history, political economy, uh, and also more specifically in Latin American history as well uh, and British decolonization. So I kind of covered all of those areas in my comprehensive exams and teaching fields Uh, but the primary focus being on foreign relations. Uh, And at West Virginia, I taught courses both halves of the U.S. survey as well as a course on U.S. foreign relations. So your major research projects, like your thesis and dissertation and all that, that was on U.S. foreign relations? Correct. My thesis and dissertation were both focused on the convergence between decolonization and the Cold War in the British West Indies. Uh, And I particularly looked at uh, the role of organized labor uh, as kind of a major actor, really, uh, in international relations uh, of that period in that region. Were you one of those lucky researchers that actually got to go take research trips to the Caribbean? <laughs> Unfortunately, I did not, um, but I was able to go to London uh, since decolonization was one of the, one of the main fulcrums of my, uh, of my study, of my research. I had the opportunity to go there. Most of the records that I needed Uh, were actually housed in London, colonial office records and things. I didn't make it to the Caribbean, though. (laughs) When I was in grad school, I was an Americanist, and so I never, of course, got to make any grand research trips like that. So I was always a little bit jealous of my world history colleagues who would get to go on jaunts down to South America and elsewhere. My big research trip was out to Simi Valley, California, to the uh, Reagan Presidential Library, which (laughs) wasn't quite the same as the people heading off into much more exotic locales. No, uh, well, California is pretty far from Ohio, so that's yeah. a bit of a jaunt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, and it, it got me out of the house for a while. I guess that's important. <laughs> now, London was a nice trip. And so how did you end up working with the uh, U.S. Southern Command? Uh, so I, while I was working on my master's and Ph.D., uh, my advisor, my primary advisor, uh, was Dr. James Siekmeyer, who started out his career working for the Department of State. Uh, and then I also... I had a close friend, Joel Christensen, now Dr. Joel Christensen, who started his Ph.D. the same year that I started my master's degree. And he also, when he finished, 
uh, went on to become a uh, historian for the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Uh, and through conversations with them uh, and talking about what their career was like working in that environment uh, really began to resonate with me as I got closer and closer to finishing uh, and further into the program. Uh, the, the job descriptions they were providing and some conversations that we had uh, really made it sound like that was a field that was going to be appealing to me. Right as I was finishing up my dissertation, uh, there was an opening down here at U.S. Southcom uh, where Joel had actually interned in the past. Uh, and another WVU student, uh, now Dr. Richard Holver, had also interned at one point. So I had a chance to talk with them about the position. I applied for it. And it really seemed like the perfect fit. Uh, I had a background, small period of time in the military. My research interests were Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, and U.S. Southcom is tasked with overseeing an area of responsibility that involves Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, so it really was a good fit for me. Uh, I applied for the job, got hired, and uh, moved on down here, I guess, two weeks before I defended my dissertation. And I've been here for the last uh, almost two years now. That's pretty cool to get the gig before you defend the dissertation, although that must have caused a, quite of a chaotic moment when you're trying to start the new job and defend the dis. <laughs> the, uh, it was, and, and the other kind of um, – that, that last couple of months was really kind of hectic trying to wrap up because once I became aware that I was going to get the job, I still had to finish the last little bit of writing, prepare for the defense, and then after the defense, obviously make the final edits and do the submission, and I'd also – already agreed to present some work at a couple of conferences that fell in that same window. So that first three or four months here was, I guess, a good my uh, good Miami pun. It was like a hurricane. Um, <laughs> uh, but, it, but it worked itself out. Um, you know, the, the biggest challenge, I think, really was trying to give the dissertation the attention that it needed to finalize you know, I think for a lot of myself and a lot of people I've talked to, the last thing you kind of work on, the most important part really uh, is the introduction, laying out what you're going to talk about. Uh, and that was kind of a rushed job for me. And then same thing kind of with the editing. I had less time to edit than I would have liked, but in the long run it was advantageous to, to have be able to transition straight from uh, the PhD program into, uh, into a full-time position. There's one thing that seems to be true for all dissertations, though, is that nobody ever has enough time to do all the proper edits and everything. Yeah. Every, everyone, no matter how long you take, it still feels rushed at the end. That's true. I, that's true. I've never heard anyone say that oh, I had plenty of time. It's just uh, I was done and just waiting for something to happen. <laughs> right. I had this done six months ago. Yeah. So uh, with the Southern Command, what what do you do there? What is a, what does a typical day in that job look like? So typical day can vary quite a bit depending on what's happening. Uh, usually we have one major, uh, there are two of us in my office, myself and, and Mr. Tim Schultz, who's the lead historian. He's been down here since 2008-ish, I think. Uh, we typically have one running major project uh, that you could think of as uh, kind of a short monograph length project that we're working on. And that's kind of our steady state activity. We'll be doing research on that, uh, get diverted off of it to, to work on some other things, but we've got that going on all the time. So when we get the chance, that's kind of our focus. Some of those projects are focused more on preserving what we do for posterity. Things like um, when the commander uh, of Southcom leaves, 
uh, we, within six months of his departure, will publish a command history uh, of his tenure. Uh, we collect inputs for that uh, annually, uh, but with the final product, we also compile oral history interviews we've conducted with the commander, and we write, a, again, a kind of monograph-length monograph project. So we'll do projects like that where we're preserving the command's activities for posterity, and we'll also do similar pro similar length products that have to do with topics of interest to the command in the present day, uh, so kind of an applied history model of informing policy. Um, if there's something going on that, in particular, some historical context we think would be really significant or important, we'll dive into a, a deep dive project on that and, and produce that ideally in conjunction with some deadlines the commands got as they come up with, you know, operational plans and things. Um, so we've got that kind of major project running all the time. Day to day, we attend about four or five meetings or briefings per week. That kind of varies. Take some notes on those. Keep our thumb on the pulse of the command to get a sense of what's going on. Where can we be value added to them? Uh, and it's also a good opportunity, those meetings, for us to, for people to reach out to us uh, to say, hey, there's a historian in the room. What can you add? Or can you guys look into this a little bit further? So that's kind of a second daily type of activity. We conduct, uh, as a third, we conduct a large number of oral histories and we transcribe them ourselves. So typically we've got a couple of transcriptions that are in the process of being uh, typed out and edited. Uh, so we'll work on those two kind of as time permits throughout the week. Uh, and then the fourth kind of day-to-day -day normal routine activity we have is responding to requests for information. Those tend to come in waves, so sometimes we'll have several at once, sometimes we'll go a few weeks without any, uh, but usually we've got at least one kind of percolating there, uh, something else for us to kind of work on. So it's a pretty dynamic environment in that we rarely have the opportunity to just run straight ahead on one on one project. You know, there's typically several things happening at the same time, uh, but at the same time, it, it gives us a chance between the two of us. We've gotten pretty efficient at uh, taking the lead on this or that particular project, is depending on where they all fall and uh, balancing those really, I guess it's four probably main things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. The uh, major project one that you're talking about with the, the monograph length studies, uh, are those what what type of audience do you have in mind for that? Is it military or is it general public or is it is it even published outside of Southcom or is it kept as part of like internal use only? For the most part, those are internal use. If we do put them out for publishing, they'll go to the uh, historians off the Joint Chiefs Historians Office. That's something that it may change at some point. Uh, kind of the real challenge we have down here is that the, there are two of us. Uh, and we are contracted. So that, to some degree, limits some of what we can do in terms of engaging outside of the command. I would say one of our primary audiences really is the future researcher coming into the command uh, in 20 years who's going to go to NARA, pull the records, and write about what we're doing. Uh, and then they can look at our, the, a history we've written on a contemporary topic or to inform a contemporary conversation, um, which we always kind of bring in. We try to balance the the work that we do for 
posterity with things that can be informative in the present day. So it's not really uh, quite as uh, bifurcated as I suggested there. We try to balance the two within the same products most of the time uh, with an eye to both the internal audience and the future researcher. I would say those are the two primary audiences. You said uh, NARA a second ago. You mean that that's the National Archives Records Administration, right? Correct. Yes, I'm okay. sorry. I should have spelled that out. <laughs> it's not a problem. Uh-huh. <laughs> so the uh, the other question that kind of sprang to mind while you were talking about all that is that you are not uh, actual military employee at the moment. So do you? Unless I unless I misunderstood, but so do you? Is there some any kind of you know, I don't want to say friction, but what is the relationship between like the full-time military guys and then you, you as not necessarily an outsider, but not not military employed? Right, that's a good question. Um, so there's basically there's military employees, there's civilian employees, and then there's contractors where I work. We fall into the contractor bin, um, and we have a great relationship. I've not experienced any friction at all in terms of what we do. Uh, in terms of interacting throughout the command. Um, I actually was uh, pleasantly surprised by uh, the degree of respect you get um, actually coming from academics into that environment. Not that I should have been surprised, but there's a lot of respect at the command for uh, what academics can bring to our, our daily routine and our operations, kind of the things that we do. And there's a lot of opportunity for us to engage and, and a lot of ex- examples of times when, when the command has kind of engaged us. Um, so I've not experienced any friction uh, at all, no. That's interesting to hear. From the stereotypical perspective, you would think that the military wouldn't have time for, you know, egghead academics or something, but it's good. It's interesting to hear that that's actually not the case, and that's that's kind of heartening to hear. Right. No, not at all. Um in fact, one of the first experiences I had, and this kind of stuck out in my mind, and this is, I think, a kind of a good example of that, what we're talking about. Um, day or two after I got there, bumped into uh, a Marine major uh, who at the gym after work, uh, someone whose office was near mine. I introduced myself. He recognized me. had seen me when I introduced myself to the command. I just introduced myself on a first-name basis. Hi, my name's Josh. Um, he made a point to say, to, uh, to, to encourage me to go by Dr. Esposito. He had a lot of respect for the fact that I'd gone and gotten that degree. He had a lot of respect for, for people who are coming from academics and, and kind of, you've earned, by, by virtue of getting the degree, uh, getting a graduate degree, you've earned a degree of respect from us. Uh, we value your input based on your experience and training in academics and that was something that really stuck with me and I've kind of gotten the same feeling uh, ever since I've been there where there really is a lot of respect for what it takes to earn a graduate degree and a lot of people coming to you and asking you hey you're the expert in this particular topic or area what can you tell me how can you inform my decision it is a combatant command so it's uh, a headquarters you know, it's a, it's a lot of, of people who themselves also have degrees, too. Uh, so there is, I think, a really strong sense of uh, respect that goes all the way around there. So it sounds like you're focused more on the um, on the officer class, and do, but do you still have interactions with, say, you know, the frontline soldiers, or is that kind of outside your purview? For us down here, that's not something we really get uh, into too much. And part of that is that there are two of us in the office. 
Uh, it's not a very large office, particularly given that we're really responsible for everything, making sure that we preserve uh, and inform everything south of Mexico. Uh, right, as I kind of said, it is a headquarters that, for the most part, uh, it is uh, officers that work there uh, and hi higher level officers, to be frank about it. So we don't do too much in terms of the on-the-ground type of uh, tactical history, very strategic operational in, in terms of uh, what we're writing about, what we're researching. I guess the only thing I would maybe add is to say that I was lucky enough when I was in graduate school to have had people around me who'd come from the, and or gone to and or gone to uh, that type of environment, uh, and I'm glad that I had that opportunity because it made me aware that it existed. It's a career that I I love it. I really really enjoy it, and I would encourage other people to look into it. So that's the sort. I guess this is a good opportunity then uh, to kind of make people aware uh, that there are those types of jobs out there, which you pr usually uh, most of us don't think of uh, day one of our our master's program. Uh, but there's a diverse field and a, and a lot of opportunity for people with a history degree. Uh, if you're aware of what's out there, if you're willing to look and and to a certain extent, take yourself out of your comfort zone because it's not a typical uh, history environment. You've got to make history work fit for uh, the needs of the command uh, in terms of turnover time and for products to be finished and things like that. Uh, so it's challenging, uh, but it's uh, it's a career that I, I think a, a lot of historians would, would find fulfilling if, if they knew it was there. I agree. I think this... Because like you said, a lot of historians typically think that, well, you know, I'm going to go into teaching because that's what the standard line is for history students. Uh, but one of the purposes of this whole podcast series is to demonstrate that uh, there's lots of other options out there. And I think military historian uh, is something that I think historians tend to hear about, but I think... Uh, there, there's probably a lot of misinformation or kind of misconceptions about what you have to do to get one of those positions. I imagine a lot of people probably think they have to be active military to get those, or they have to be specializing in military history to get those. But based on what you've been saying, and a few other people I've talked to that have held uh, similar positions with local units kind of scattered around the country, it's that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be more they're more interested in just general skills do you have the skills that are necessary to produce good history and that's more what they're looking for i mean i'm sure they would love to have subject matter knowledge and all that but there's but it seems that the skills kind of become a bit more important than having specialized training in military history or a specific place right absolutely i mean there's obviously an advantage to having the background but it certainly is not an, inhibit, an inhibition if you don't um, it's not something that's going to inhibit your ability to do the job in any way. Um, mostly it is, you're right, it's, it's the skills that they're looking for. Okay, and so we've touched on this a little bit, but do you have any other suggestions or advice for listeners who would be interested in going into this type of field? I have a couple of things I guess I could think of. The first would be to, uh, and I'm sure this is the case for, for a lot of different career fields, but look for internships. Uh, if you have the opportunity while you're working on your degree, look for either internships uh, in, in this type of field or any type, really, of public history engagement that you can do outside of or in addition to your degree will help you work on some of the things that you need uh, to be able to do for the job. It will help boost your CV when you put it out there. 
one of the things that I, I haven't experienced here so much, but I, I know is the case in, in other uh, similar types of, of military history jobs uh, is that there's an interest in someone who's got the type of skill set uh, that we get in, in a traditional graduate program, uh, the skill set that I developed in my graduate coursework, uh, but also uh, there's an interest in public history and museum type uh, of skills. Can you balance, is someone able to balance the research uh, and the writing with some knowledge of preserving artifacts and things. Now, it's not the case in all of these jobs, but for some of them it is, for a lot of them it is, and it's definitely something that I think would work to someone's advantage to get a little bit of background in public history, and public history itself kind of a, a broad term. There's a lot of subsets of that, but getting some experience there um, and, and just broadening your skill set, um, you're going to be able to research and write coming out of a graduate program, but if you've also got some uh, coursework and, and especially if you've got some real-world experience uh, in some type of preservation and museum work, um, you really make your, uh, your CV uh, much more robust, much more competitive for these types of jobs. Um, and then the other thing would really be just to, uh, there's a website, usajobs.gov, and that's really where you'll find most of these jobs posted. Um, a lot of them, depending on uh, what they are or when they're posted, sometimes uh, they, they give certain preference to veterans. So if there's anyone who's a veteran, you, you might have a leg up in that sense. Um, but if you go to the website, that's where you'll find them. Uh, when the, I imagine when the hiring freeze is over. <laughs> Once the hiring freeze ends. <laughs> right. I think that's probably a good place to wrap this up. So uh, thank you for joining me today. Okay, thank you for having me. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at snhuhistory at gmail.com. I'm Rob Denning. Thanks for listening.